Hi, this is a special presentation of a Patreon-exclusive episode where we are recapping the first episode of Survivor Borneo. We are going to be re-watching the entirety of Survivor Borneo and recapping that on the Patreon. We are putting this episode out as a little teaser as to what we are getting up to over there. So if you enjoy this episode and you'd like to go back and look at the history of Survivor and relive the very first season, which is truly iconic, television. Then to get the rest of our recaps for Borneo, go check out our Patreon. We will put a link to it in the show notes, or you can go to patreon.com forward slash drop your buffs. And we are not going to stop at Borneo. We are also going to rewatch some other less talked about seasons that frankly, we just want to be able to rewatch and talk about. Everybody, everybody, everybody drop your Welcome back to Drop Your Buffs. I'm Sean Ross. I'm Evan Ross Katz. I should have said Drop Your Buffs After Dark as we are known on our Patreon, because we can truly be ourselves there. <laughs> yeah, and you might uh, hear our voices get a little slinkier, and that's because this is Drop Your Buffs After Dark. Yeah. So we are recapping the very first episode of Survivor, the series premiere, The Marooning. The Marooning of Hello. Survivor Borneo. Evan, high-level thoughts upon this rewatch? I had the time of my fucking life. <laughs> I just thought, so obviously we're going to talk about like the, the bigger aspects of this episode, but I think that like the micro beats contained in this episode from the musical flourishes to the lighting of tribal council, there is just so much to discuss about the show itself and then like how the show was made because there wasn't a blueprint, so at that point, everything had to be a choice, some of which remain in the show today, many of which do not. And so, as someone who just watched the season 43 premiere, it's so fun to go back and watch an episode that has a lot of the same construct by way of being a premiere, but feels completely different. And I just think it was like a perfect episode of television. Like, I don't have... Yeah anything i there's nothing i would do differently even the stuff that doesn't work absolutely works totally i was going to say there were hits and misses in the episode because they're figuring out how the show works you know they are figuring this out on the fly and you can very much tell that rewatching season one and we're not going to get into the later episodes uh, at this point but it's worth saying that that some of the format even evolves throughout the season as they figure out what works and how Jeff is going to preside over tribal council. I mean, it's not going to be for several more seasons before Jeff starts to narrate challenges even, but there are, you know, if I was to give a miss, it's like, I do think some of the challenges could use a little bit of commentary, but it's really fun to watch play out. And there's this element of Survivor Borneo and and I don't even know if I would go all the way to All-Stars, but just some of the old school seasons where it's really hard to put my finger on it, but there's a magic to it that 
you feel like you're a part of the action. You can imagine yourself there, where I feel like the presentation of Survivor becomes very quickly, actually, quite arm's length. You have viewer mm -hmm. and show, where in Borneo, you really tr truly feel a part of the show. You can really imagine yourself on that beach with those players and get a sense of what they're going through in like a 60 second segment because they really do jump around also with the storytelling and yet it all works so seamlessly. Yeah, and I and I also really like the idea of Jeff introducing the people and saying this is who they are, this is where they're from and this is what they do rather than allowing them to say it because I think we were able to introduce all 16 of our castaways together at once with equal amounts of screen time because it's Jeff sharing who they are, you know, quick glance at who everybody is and then straight to the action. So as a result, you have some people in this episode who are very much not featured, but I don't think the episode suffers as a result because I think, and this is one of the things about having 16 contestants versus mm -hmm. 18 or 20 is that it's still, you still have a feel for who everybody is um, in spite of the fact that this premiere is very different than 43's in the sense that 43 felt like it really went out of its way to present each of the 18 players, um, not always to great success, but like the effort was felt, this not so much, but at the same time, when you have characters like Richard and Rudy, you want more time with them. So I feel like that's the great thing about having a cast like this and so many dynamos is that that choice to center them is actually for the betterment of the show. Totally. And I have to say, there is really something to the two tribe format. And I know that this is something that you have talked about quite a bit in our modern recaps. But I've always been a little more agnostic on like, does, does it matter that there's three tribes or four tribes? Certainly it's harder to keep a track of, especially when they are doing tribe swaps, which they've sort of gotten rid of uh, in the new era of Survivor. But I've always found it is a little hard to keep track of what's going on on each camp. But here, looking back, you really have, it's a rivalry between two teams. It's its like a sport. If, if I were familiar with sports, I would imagine that this is how it would go, that you have two teams and one you might cheer for, or you might be kind of like, just watching how it plays out. And it becomes very clear what the dynamics are. I mean, there is a very Pagong quality to Pagong, and there is a very Toggy quality to Toggy. And we see this on other seasons, I think some more than others, but it's just how, how did they find this magic? How did they find this cast? It's wild. 6,000 people applied for the first season of Survivor, not knowing what it was, really. And... You know, we would go on at, to have many, many tens of thousands of more applicants in later seasons and to the modern day, tens of thousands of applicants. And I don't think that they have ever recreated the magic of that first cast. It's truly remarkable that they found these 16 people out of the smallest casting pool that they have ever had. Right. And interestingly enough is that no one's really performing for the cameras, probably because there isn't so much of a precedent for like how one would perform for the cameras. But even Richard's energy, which is very braggadocious and very off-putting for many because he declares in this episode that he is the winner. Um, and we've had that happen in season since. I mean, Tyson comes to mind as a player that I think is very similar to Richard in that sense. 
But the way that Richard expresses it is like, he's not performing so much as just stating what he believes to be a fact. Um, he's just a very, yeah. <laughs> Wait, what'd you say? He has conviction. Oh, sorry. I thought you said fiction. I was like, oh, no, <laughs> fact. Um, yes, conviction. Yeah, a lot of conviction. But um, I don't, it, he, he declares it in the sense that's just, this is an, an inevitability for him that he's sharing uh, with the producers and, and by proxy us. It doesn't feel like he's, you know, like I said, it doesn't feel like he's performing. And I just think that quality, everyone's just being their whole selves. And it's so evident. I mean, like, We'll get to it, but the interaction between BB and Gretchen um, is just fascinating because there are two people um, that are very set in their ways of how things should be done, and they're listening to each other. That's the interesting thing. It's not that they're not listening, it's that they fundamentally don't agree, and because they are listening, a really interesting conversation is able to be had. I mean, the scene goes on for a while. It's not, in Modern Survivor, if something like that were to happen, the person would be like, hey, sit down, blah, blah, blah. The per other person would be like, no, I don't want to. They'd walk away, and then there'd be a confessional where they would talk about it. But this scene, like, and I think maybe that's something I, I feel about the season. A lot of the action plays out in the scenes themselves, there's a lot of show versus tell, and I think Modern Survivor moves towards more of a tell model. Now, yes and no. I do disagree with you a little bit here because as we move through the season, we will find that we are not being shown everything, and that is because they did not have the coverage on the beach with the cameras to capture everything. So as we move through the season we will find that we are told a lot of things that we didn't see and i don't think that that was a choice that was because right, like, they yeah. didn't capture the moment and so through confessional we have to learn about some really pivotal conversations that happen um, yeah. and that's that's maybe a miss but even then we have the right people to tell us that story and like you say they are very genuine i think um if there, if i was going to disagree on one other thing that you said, it would be that uh, people are not playing for the camera. There is one person who is playing for the camera, and that is Sean. And I think that that's pretty well established that he is playing a character because I think that Sean came onto this show with a goal in mind, and that was to become a TV star. And so this sort of like goofy persona he has, I think, and, and the unwillingness to engage with the game, as we'll see post-merge with his alphabet strategy is all trying to keep this nice goofy guy persona going. Yeah. But even no. then, like to his credit, that is a part of his real life character where it's like, this is something that he wanted for himself. This was his goal. And I think that in a lot of ways that shines through authentically in the show. And it doesn't feel like, I think what you're getting at when we talk about playing to the cameras is over expressing oneself where what we're seeing with Sean is a slight inauthenticity, but we are almost in on it, if that makes sense. Not in the way of like a Tyson, where Tyson's goal was to be a star of Survivor. Sean's goal was to be a star. Right. And interestingly, there wasn't really a pipeline at this point for how one yeah. goes from reality television into being a star. But yeah, I think that had he gone in with the intention of like, I'm going to, it's kind of like um, what uh, 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 Johnny Fairplay does in, in season seven later on, which is like, I want to fuck with the game, which mm -hmm. was Johnny. I feel like here, Sean, if anything was like, you know, as you say, unwilling to maybe play by the rules, but it wasn't like he was trying to like flip the table, like yeah. Teresa Judice in that same sense. Like, I don't think he was smart enough really to like 
to mess with with the game itself. Um, but one other thing I want to mention too that I was reminded of while revisiting this is Rudy is a star. Yeah. Rudy is he um, he jumps off the screen. I watched the episode last night with fiance to the show Billy and then a friend of ours Fallon who has recently mainlined all of Survivor as well. And the three of us were laughing out loud at just about everything Rudy says. He's just so funny and he's really intelligent and his the way he he sees things he he has a lot of great perspective about people and the game and how to play it he makes that one point um when he's talking about all the young people and he makes he has the realization that there's more of them them than there are of him and i think that's such a smart analysis which is to say like he in his mind they're all idiots and he is the smartest and he deserves to win but he also recognizes that he's going to have to play with idiots and get in the mud with them in order to to play the game well and so I just, I love that. I don't know if it's a dichotomy, but I just, I love the complexity of Rudy. Um, and I think this season would not, I mean, the season wouldn't be the same without, you know, each of the 16 of them. But I really think that he is the fulcrum of this season. I mean, yeah, you contrast Rudy with Bibi, who they are essentially playing the same archetype on different tribes. But Bibi is unwilling to adapt where Rudy, very early in this game, so where true. the game had no blueprint to follow, realized that, you know, I think it, you could easily argue that the most important quality of a successful survivor player is the ability to adapt uh, and sort of be fluid in the way that you are interacting. That's that social game, which the concept of a social game doesn't really exist yet at this point. They are figuring this out. Rudy has that adaptability in his social yeah. game how successful it is or not, uh, you know, could be debated, but BB did not have that perspective. Right, right, right. No, that's such a good point. And he's just, he's so fun to watch on screen. It's just every interaction he has is funny. He's just, he's got a lot of star power. And it could not be, it cannot be understated how big of a star Rudy was when this aired. And it I, makes I mean, sense. People talk about Colleen. Colleen went on to have, uh, uh, you know, appear in a blockbuster, I don't know, blockbuster, but, uh, you know, a major motion picture. A um, she, she was beloved by millions of people. She was America's sweetheart. But Rudy's star power outshone Colleen tenfold. Yeah. And we've talked about this, I think, maybe in the Richard uh, interview that we did. But, like, I think Rudy's also a really good example of someone who would be considered homophobic by many people. But I don't really find him to be homophobic so much as I find him to be ignorant in the sense that I don't think he'd met a lot of gay people before he met Richard Hatch. And I think he had an opinion about what gay people were. But in meeting Richard, finding someone that shifted the perception that he had through lived experience, I think his idea of gay people changed as a result. And I don't think you get to see a lot of that on modern reality television is is someone holding a belief that's, you know, again, that could be considered homophobic or racist or what have you, but is just needs their mind expanded. And so I think Rudy showed a complexity of character. Um, you know, the, the line deliveries are not always tasteful. Um, he says a lot of things that would be, not only would get him canceled in 2022, Survivor would not air a lot yeah. of the things that Rudy says in this episode, which I find so interesting. And also so interesting that it's like, 
He's so controversial and so beloved. I use air quotes when I say controversial. Um, But, you know, I think like you could watch, it's easy to watch this episode and be like, wow, Rudy's disgusting, blah, blah, blah. But he's also, it's like my reaction to that is like, he's just being Rudy. I mean, we have to remember that this was 22 years ago. The world was in an incredibly different place. We had never seen, I mean, we've talked about this a lot when we talked about it with Richard himself. We had never seen a character like Richard Hatch. We had never seen a gay person represented on TV that was essentially not a stereotype or, um, you know, what what did we have? We had Ellen. Uh, I think Will and Grace had recently premiered. But in a lot of cases, we did not have any nuanced depictions of gay people. And Richard does not fit into a stereotype for gay people. I think even today, he doesn't really. And, uh, you know, Richard is unlike many, many, many gay people, even to come on TV that, that we see. It's really hard to put him in a box. And so it's interesting to see then Rudy come in and once again, adapt to this situation, like for all of his, you know, sort of uh, biases, he comes in and he's willing to open his mind and change his perspective in one way or another, whether it's to further himself in the game or because this was a genuine friendship, which I I think probably both are the case. Um, It's really interesting to see that relationship evolve and Rudy even has almost an unwillingness to talk about it throughout the season and yet he does and I think he says more in the few words that he says it than uh, many would say in in you know over the course of several confessionals in Modern Survivor um, it's just such a such a great dynamic and that dynamic is really something that drove people to watch this show I mean like I, there was so much uh, at the time around the concept of the show that drove people to watch it nobody knew what was going to happen people didn't understand that this was even a game i mean the pitch was basically we are stranding 16 people on an island one will remain and they'll win a million dollars i mean there was very real conversation in the pop culture that people were going to die on the show of course that wasn't going to be the case but it drove people to watch the early episodes and i think what kept them were some of these Uh, relationships that were forming and this relationship between Rudy and Richard was a huge talking point in pop culture at the time we had seen nothing like it we had seen nothing like Richard Hatch we had seen very little if anything like Rudy and the dynamic of the two of them uh, was really tv magic that CBS couldn't have asked for better right and the thing too is I know many people today would look back on Richard Hatch as like a great survivor villain. But I think I wouldn't. And I would say that I think the interesting thing too about both Rudy and Richard is like they're not, and again, I think people would look back as Rudy as a great hero. I really think that neither of them fit into hero or villain. I think that's one of the great things about this season. Same thing with Susan, same thing with Kelly is you have a lot of these characters who are in situations, whether by choice or through circumstance often where like, it can kind of go either way. Like I remember at one point in this season, like really rooting for Kelly being like, she's the hero of the season. But then you finish the season and you're kind of like, fuck Kelly. You know what I mean? Like maybe Susan was right. (laughs) So I think this is a great season in the sense of like, there's not someone to root for necessarily. So even though I don't like a lot of the people on Toggy and I'm rooting for Pagong, I'm ultimately happy to see Toggy continue because they have the more dynamic characters on their tribe. Yeah. 
So it's an interesting feeling where it's like, I'm rooting for both tribes in a sense, because like, game-wise, I'm rooting for Pagong, but then like character-wise, I'm rooting for Toggy, and that's really fun to watch. Yeah, totally, totally. Okay, well, should we get into this? I'm sure that there's going to be a little bit more broader context uh, discussion as we go through the episode, because there's so much here that is going to evolve over the course of the show's history. And this is such a relic to look back on. But let's start with the very opening where we actually see the players walking through a Malaysian fishing village as Jeff is telling us basically the concept of the show, that these 16 Americans have agreed to be stranded uh, on an island in the South China Sea. And we actually get to see them. I forgot, actually, that we get to see them walking through a village where they're going to go onto the boat where they will be uh, marooned from. And this is such a great little moment. It almost reminds me of Pearl Islands when they when they start in the village, although, of course, without that game element. But it's just so nice to be brought along. So much of this season and feels like you are being brought along with the players like I said like you are a part of the action and to see this this pre-marooning shot of them just arriving sort of uh getting ready to play the game uh, is is a really fun thing to see I also just so appreciate Jeff's energy from the outset which is so different from the mm. Jeff of today I was Again, one of those things that really stood out in this rewatch is just how different Jeff is. Obviously, we talk about how physically different he is due to, you know, the the effects of, of <clears throat> his 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 life. Um, but the energy is so different. He's so calm throughout it, and yeah. I actually think that it works so much better than the Jeff of today because I think the Jeff of today is so verbose in how he always speaks in wanting to underline the epic nature. And what's really great about the Jeff in this first episode is it actually is really epic, everything. You don't need him to express it. You can just look around. They're literally jumping off a boat in the middle middle of the South China Sea. And so I like that idea of him sort of just presenting everything with this calm manner. And, and to your point about us, the audience, experiencing it with them, I kind of felt like I, I got that from this because it wasn't him needing to set it up in some kind of way. It just he allowed the circumstances of the show to drive the narrative, which I think is really effective. Yeah, it's amazing. Jeff has a, a very aloof quality in this opening episode. And and I think he starts to gain a little more control over the season. I think we'll see that as we continue to watch. But in this one, especially and as we talk about the marooning, it's like we see them in the fishing village and then, and then, uh, well, we get the theme song, uh, the most iconic Survivor opening, I think, of all time. I don't think any other opening. And, you know, we love the theme song, but I don't think anything rivals this. I mean, some of these shots are just like cinematic brilliance. I mean, that shot of Colleen in the opening theme song, you know, with her sort of like finger in her mouth with the flies flying around her head. Like they they have never recreated the magic of this no. opening. Theme. And Kelly. It's so incredible. Kelly is Kelly's giving ANTM. Incredible. Incredible. Yeah. There's just so many great shots in it. And we'll talk about the music a little later. Oh, okay, good. Because I, okay. We have a voice memo about the music. Okay. Uh, so I should I hold my wait. thoughts on the music? Yeah, let's let's okay. hang on to it. I mean, I'll certainly bring it up if you need to. But uh, we do have a voice memo on the music. So we'll talk about that at the end. But 
you know, we get through this opening and it's like straight out of the gate. Jeff has lost control, it feels like, because unlike in later seasons where he'll kind of like have a pep talk or sort of like set the ground rules or whatever for what they're going to do, where he says, you know, you're going to have two minutes to get off this boat and get all the supplies you need. Uh, we open with the the castaways already collecting things from the boat and jumping off the boat. Jeff had like even almost trips over somebody uh, and he is just kind of like, almost bewildered that like okay these people are are jumping off this boat they are being marooned and they are going to go play this game and it feels like you know to your point it's like not only are we along for the ride with these players but i feel like we're along for the ride with jeff like we are figuring this out with jeff and i think it's really effective because i think in addition to jeff kind of being caught off guard i think the the crew is as well in terms of how to get the necessary footage because i'm not sure that they realized that they were going to have 16 people running Chaos. about and they were going to have to track them all but i actually think it works to the show's advantage that frenetic sense of the camera work not being able to always get the right shot i think it's one of the great things about this episode and what I imagine continues on for a while is you end up because Survivor now has this cinematic feel, but this this sort of era of the show is very much more like of a found footage kind of feel. And again, to underline what you said earlier about making us feel like we're part of it, I think it's so much more effective doing it this way. I kind of like all of those moments where the cameras clearly didn't know it was about to get something, saw something out of the corner of its eye and darts over to it. I think that looks cool. Mm -hmm. Rather than now when we get those cutaways that as we got in the premiere of 41, when you see this robust crew and they're trying to show you sort of just how epic, again, a word that I know the show loves, how epic it all is, I, I can't help but feel in rewatching this episode how much the show need not be so epic. <laughs> well, this is the thing. See, I think that the show has always been incredibly cinematic, but it over the course of 22 years, the definition of cinematic changes. Yeah. And yeah. it's really important that people know that Mark Burnett, you know, his goal from the outset of Survivor was to create a very cinematic experience. But the cinema that he was referencing, he was heavily, heavily influenced by the Blair Witch Project, which I believe came out in 99, I want to say. And so uh, that was like fresh on his mind, of course, like has a lot of parallels to reality television, this idea of found footage. And so I think he really wanted to cre recreate the magic of that. I mean, that was a, an, an incredibly, one of the most financially successful movies ever made because it was made on a small budget and made a ton of money. You know, Survivor could be the same thing. And I think he achieves this so well. And in part, I think it's accidental. And yet other parts are so beautifully orchestrated that you just don't even notice them sometimes but there are shots uh, like and i'm kind of getting ahead of myself but th there are uh, i don't know if i think it's the day two or day three opening when everybody's waking up there are these morning shots and there's uh -huh. this sort of like bluish purplish hue to everything and there's a lot of like silhouettes of people on the beach it is just so incredibly beautiful and has such a point of view that i think that when i say that the definition of cinematic has changed over the years yeah. it's like no one would argue that that opening 
those opening shots of Survivor 43 were not cinematic, right? They were cinematic, but the definition of cinematic has changed. And I think it personally, and this is a personal opinion, that it's changed for the worse. I think that cinema has become uh, very influenced by overproduced sort of like Marvel-esque films where uh, everything is so perfectly orchestrated that it becomes almost soulless. And yeah, those drone shots in 43 are cool, but are, are they, they unique? No. I mean, are I think they cool? they're kind of cool. They're kind of cool. Mm-hmm. But they don't necessarily... It's it, it's new for Survivor, but is it is it never been seen before? No. Where I think that the premiere of Borneo, um, while we had some reference with maybe the Blair Witch Project, it had never been seen really on TV in this way that I had seen. I know there had been a couple of reality shows prior to this, but it just felt like the scope, the the care, the thoughtfulness of some of these shots, even if they were sort of like happenstance or just luck in some cases, just is unparalleled. It truly is a beautiful piece of television. And I think this is one of the benefits to moving the show to different locations season to season that it's not often considered, you know? Mm -hmm. The idea that you mentioned the light in that morning shot, and it's like that light is light that can't, it's going to be different when it's shot in different places, depending on where it is. Whereas like that scene from season 35, if you were to recreate that scene from season 35 on to now, it would look the same in every shot because of the location saying the same. So yeah, I think that's definitely something that is notable. And then the other moment I think of is that conversation between Richard and Susan later in the episode, the staging of that scene. You And, and for, I mention it because not only is it so interesting, you have Susan in the foreground, Richard sitting in a tree in the background, In and the body language of Richard is just, can be no, described as no other way than just so Richard Hatchian. But the great thing about that scene is it's a long scene, first of all, but the camera person does not decide to move over and get a front shot of Susan until about two thirds of the way into the scene. So for the first two thirds of the scene, you're getting a profile of Susan in the foreground, talking to Richard in the background, and it's just so dynamic. It's like such a more interesting shot than in Modern Survivor where they're in the woods just talking to each other. Like mm-hmm. that staging, the distance between them, the fact that she's not making direct eye contact with him, but he is making or he's looking at her the whole time. It's just fascinating. And, and I love the idea that the camera person wasn't saying, oh, I need to get to the point where I have the best shot of both of them but rather, and maybe this is just an accent, who's to say, but rather they were like, no, no, it looks cooler this way. And it just makes me think about how, how many situations in the modern show where we're just so used to two people standing together talking. Again, even thinking about Rudy giving that confessional where he's submerged in the water is so fascinating. That would be a completely different confessional if it were just played like it would be today. Even Mm -hmm. the difference of having night confessionals versus day confessionals, how much they add to it. There's so much about what this show is offering by way of not just what's being said, but how it's being shot, the music, which we'll get to. There's just such a texture and care to this show and how it was made. And some of that is accidents and some of that is purposeful. But whereas I feel like the show today is so much about the pre-production elements that they put in place to make the show, 
this feels like this great um, amalgamation of, yes, obviously preparation and care, but also just allowing it to sort of develop organically before their eyes. And it's a, it's like a marvel to watch. I think when you're talking about the camera work, uh, it th- this this is a huge contributing factor as to why the audience feels like we are along for the ride because it's shaky, it's moving. We will see the camera walk towards conversations where the mic starts to pick up the conversation. And so it's truly like a POV. It is like a third person POV where you are walking into a conversation. There's a conversation in this episode where it's nothing. It's a nothing conversation. It's just Sue and Sean talking and Sue's like, hey, so you got that nipple piercing, huh? And he's like, yeah, I'm a doctor with a nipple piercing. How about that? But it's like that conversation, we come into that conversation with the camera walking up the beach towards them because they see that they are having an interaction and they want to capture it. And that really brings you in. I mean, there's going to be a, a, a really incredible scene that's very similar much later in the season which is much more pivotal and that is sue and kelly's fight on the beach which we come into midway through the fight we don't actually like this is one of the most important moments in survivor history this uh falling out between sue and kelly and it is not fully captured on camera we come into it halfway when literally the camera spins around figures out something's going on and rushes towards them and it's very much if if you were on this beach that would be your experience you're kind of like doing your own thing and you see action and you go to the action and i think that the way that the cameras do this and then the, the quality of uh, of the film itself is just like as you said so textured and the the shots are so like nuanced and yet haphazard that you really feel like you are a part of the action as a result. So, so great. But let's get back to the marooning because uh, I just want to point out here that we do get our very first instance and it is so unepic because he is not even on the screen. Uh, but our first instance of Jeff saying uh, 39 days, 16 people, one survivor as they're sort of like hopping out into uh, the ocean there or the sea. I should say. And I also love, just speaking of the filming again, that you get these splices of sort of like pre-produced film with the actual action. So for example, when they're chucking things off of the boat, you get, much was made of the introduction of slow-mo shots in 41. And it wasn't until I went back and rewatched this that, no, they were splicing slow-mo shots into episode one, season one, where you have like the crates being thrown overboard and then it's spliced in with a slow-mo, like beautifully uh, planned shot of, you know, a a crate that says Pagong going under the water and coming back up with this sort of uh, filter over the film. Film, uh, that that sort of adds to that we're watching not just a reality but also a, like a piece of cinema in a way. Right. Well, and speaking of splices, and I think this episode begins what will be a long theme throughout the season. But the cutaways of the snakes and the rats throughout the mm-hmm. season—it's just something that it's just so masterful. Where it's like not shoved down your throat, but it's like something that they're warming up your appetite for or like I I, like warming up like the fact that you know if you don't know where the season is going that would be meaningless cutaways to you but if you do know it's just it's just a great storytelling like it it it, the culmination of the season feels so earned 
And it plants the seeds for so many things to come. I mean, the constant cutaways in Micronesia from the women, even pre-Black Widow Brigade, to spiders, right, eating their prey. And I think that really takes off after the show uh, switches from standard definition to high definition in Gabon, where it very much becomes influenced by the Planet Earth series. But, you know, it's amazing to go back and look at the premiere of Borneo, where nature documentary was already having an influence oh my on gosh. the show. And, I, and that shot of them sleeping in the shelter and it does that pull out shot and the snake is literally slithering right in front of the shelter. I mean, it's incredible because I feel like one thing the show loves to do is like, and this happens throughout all of the seasons, but like that, you know, close up shot of the rats eating the food, but you never actually know like, that could be found footage. I mean, it's, I'm not saying it is. I'm not being a conspiracy theorist, but I'm just saying it's like, it's very not specific to, at all. Whereas like this shot was like, you really got a sense that like this giant snake is slithering through just mere feet away from when they're, from where they are sleeping. And I don't know, just the fact that they got that and, and the way it's filmed and it's just stuff like that that I think is like, it's a remind again, I'm going to keep saying again to this because it keeps coming up. But to your point about you really feel like you're brought in. It's like I had so many moments throughout this where I was like reminded of the fact that they are living in the middle of nowhere and all that shit is out there. Like from the rats to the snakes to everything. Which is so amazing because the part of the draw of the old school seasons of Survivor was that the conversation at the time was far greater around... Um, what would I do? Would I do this? Is this something I would do? Where we sort of lost that. I mean, people still talk about it with the modern seasons, but there's just, I think, such such, uh, a lack of survivalist elements to the actual TV show that that you're asking yourself those questions less. You're asking yourself more questions about what would I do in the game? Is this the right strategic move? But it's not like bigger picture would i strand myself on a desert island for a million dollars would i do that would i be willing to have rats crawl over me as i sleep would i be willing to interact with these venomous snakes if i had to um and that was such an important aspect of like the the cultural phenomenon that survivor was it was really about putting yourself in the situation and i think that they really capture that in the actual presentation of the show can we talk about as they are rafting towards their beaches on two separate tribes? And Jeff is explaining uh, the game further to us that, you know, we have these two tribes. One is called Toggy, one is called Pagong. You know, they're going to vote each other out eventually. Um, that we get our very first splices of the shots of the players back at home. And wow. this is something that they did. I think the last, I think the first time they didn't do it. Maybe it was Vanuatu, or maybe that was the last time they did I don't think they did it in Vanuatu. I can't remember now. Um, but it certainly by season 10, it ends. Um, and I've really, really loved these. And I know they're a bit cheesy. And in some ways, they're getting back to it with 41 with showing flashbacks. But like, it's not the same thing. Uh, it's just these, <laughs> these like two-second shots of them, usually in their work environment. Uh, did any of these stand out to you, Evan, as like a really great uh, cutaway shot as as Jeff explains uh, who each individual, everybody gets one, right? Each mm-hmm. individual member, their age and their occupation. Did any stand out to you? I can't say that any did. I mean, but I bet one did for you. 
Uh, well, there's a couple. I, there's two. There's two that sort of follow the same format, where it's somebody uh, with their back to us who turns. Oh, turns. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not does a head flip, but turns. And uh, one of them is Sue wearing a blue hard hat. Uh, she just looks so great, and I think she like licks her lips at the end. Or so. Like it's just like not a great shot, but it, I just love to see it. And then I think the nicest one was Stacy, who uh, is a lawyer from San Francisco, and they got a shot of her in front of the Golden Gate Bridge doing, and she actually does the hair flip. Um, and the other one that stood out to me was Sonia because it's so bad. <laughs> Where Sonia is uh, just filmed on a, on her couch with like a. <laughs> bare white wall behind her it's a it's a terrible shot and it's just funny that that's what they got for sonia when others were just so uh so orchestrated choreographed i do think this would be such a fun like device to bring back to the show it's funny i wish that they had more of a sense of humor about these aspects of the show which i know kind of seem corny today but i think would be really fun elements to sort of uh remix into the show now can I ask you, do they still do this with Big Brother? Because I remember when they would get their key or whatever, uh, they would do these shots of the players at home getting their key, meaning like they're going to move into the house. Yep, they still do that now. Wow. I think to Big Brother's credit, which is a terrible television show, <laughs> it is very good about uh, celebrating its own history in that sense. Like it, a lot of the, the challenges repeat from season to season. And it is, if you are a fan of like formulaic television, Big Brother is very fulfilling in that sense. And I think that's part yeah. of the reason why a lot of the fans love it as fervently as they do, because there are these benchmark expectations of the game that exist, which Survivor has, but Survivor has modified itself so much throughout the years that, and I think Big Brother uh maybe to its credit but who, who's to say but like is uh does not uh deviate from its format too often yeah i think about actually this is reminding me of in survivor 41 i don't remember if you remember i don't know if you remember this but there was that shot of tiffany finding out that she was going to be on the season um and she had filmed her telling her husband Mm-hmm. And like that was a real that almost feels like getting the key or whatever. And that's not something that that's something that Tiffany did for herself. Uh, and then I guess gave the show. But I wish that that had like sort of like tweaked something in their mind to be like, oh, maybe we should do this for people. Like that would be really fun to try to right. get like reactions, if not their reaction, finding out they're going to be on the show and then like tell their spouse or whatever. Um, so yeah, I wish they would lean a little more into this. I also love Colleen's in front of because it's like she's an ad advertising student or marketing student or something like that and she's in this in front of this wall of tvs as though it's like uh you know those old sort of like radio shacks or whatever that would have a wall of tvs and i was like yeah that's what that's what a marketing uh executive looks like i also think it was interesting sorry i said i said marketing executive i certainly don't think that was the case i think she was a student (laughs) i don't think she was an executive (laughs) It's interesting, too, that, you know, Sonia is introduced as a cancer survivor because I was thinking about, like, in Survivor 43, they would have pulled up to the island and she would have been introducing herself and would have been like, I'm Sonia, I survived cancer. And then there would be a cutaway of her stitching together the palm fronds with some of the other older tribe members. And she would be sharing the fact that she has survived cancer and someone else would be like, my daughter survived cancer. And there would be a big moment born from that. I, I think it's interesting how just how much the show has changed and how a detail like that, which is no doubt a big part of Sonya's life, is never presented by Sonya at any point in the game. Mm -hmm. Um, And one would think that is a big reason why in 
the game today or even soon after that, saying that you're a cancer survivor is a reason for people to potentially keep you in the game because they know that that's a really uh, triumphant story. The idea that you survived cancer and then you go on to excel at a game like Survivor, but that was never something that she, well, maybe we didn't see this, but like that was never something that was used in any way in her gameplay. Whereas I feel like today it would be not necessarily a big part of someone's strategy, but it would be a big part of their narrative, if nothing else. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the Toggy tribe here. It's it's hard to figure out how we're talking about these episodes because it, ju- it truly jumps back and forth between the tribes so frequently. Uh, that's a little bit jarring. But well, let's focus you get that, on- that musical cue that lets you know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Which I kind of like. It's a little much. It's like a little too frequent. I do think that they dr- they pull back on this a little if memory serves correctly. And certainly by the merge, they don't need that anymore. Um, but wow, it's it's constant. <laughs> uh, but let's focus on the Toggy tribe for a minute here because it takes them two hours. We find out uh, on a Chiron that it takes them two hours to get to their beach on their raft, which is a long time to be rafting, uh, especially when you consider that in 43 they were... Uh, motorboated to their beach motorboated speedboated <laughs> i don't know if anyone was motorboated on 43 but uh they are driven by motorboat to their beach and here you know you did have to raft and and we see this in in a lot of the old school seasons that they have to make their way it's it's a true marooning right and so let's see uh there was some moments here that stood out to me one was that sue says there's so many things that sort of like happen in the background or like blink and you'll miss them or you're not paying attention and you'll miss it and something that stuck out to me that i don't remember ever noticing before was that as soon as they arrive sue goes uh we could make a mud house uh out of all of these things uh because they had you know all these bamboo sticks or whatever and she was like we can use these as rebar and make a mud house which i felt like was very reminiscent of the next season where we had uh, who was arguably cast to be the next sue which was deb the first boot of australian outback who very famously suggested that they create a shelter using rocks and so this was like a nice little uh accidental reference i think that i noticed that i had never noticed before um, but Rudy gets the first confessional and he's complaining about how the actual trip into the camp went where he's talking about how everyone this is kind of the first time we get Rudy being like everyone's dumb except for me where he said you know they tied crates to the back of the raft they slowed us down and and then immediately we get a confessional from Kelly complaining about Rudy complaining uh, which is just great you know immediate interpersonal conflict here especially as we know that they are going to be more or less forced to work together for the rest of the game so the Toggies' first act as a group is basically talking over each other on what they want to do. Um, there's a lot of people who are talking about what they're going to do with the shelter, where they're going to put it. I thought it was interesting that Dirk's very first uh, point of order was that they need to focus on where they're going to put the latrine, the latrine, which it's not really talked about anymore in the modern seasons of Survivor, but like literally where do you take a shit? And uh, they have a full conversation. We even see them build one out of a crate. And that's very interesting. Because I think that uh, what I've heard, this should be another question we should ask returning players is like, what's the bathroom situation? Because what I've heard is that they all do aqua dumps now. They, and I think they're asked to do it. I think they're asked to poop in the water, which (laughs) 
uh, is an interesting experience, but I liked that they built a toilet here. Um, but then that's where we get this important scene here where Richard is really like not contributing to the action. He is sitting in this tree and what he's trying to do is, uh, you know, as, as Sue points out this like corporate leadership thing where he's trying to get everyone together to be like, what are we doing here? What's our goal? We should be working towards a common goal. And it's really interesting to watch, especially in this first episode, as we know that an alliance is going to form, but it doesn't, it takes time to form the, uh, and there's certainly no reference to it in this first episode, but I thought it was interesting that Richard talked about we're here for a common goal and how are we going to work together to achieve that common goal? Like that sounds to me like the seeds of at least a tribal alliance against the other tribe. But nobody's having any of it, and this is where you get that great conversation with Sue. And what's also great about this interaction between the two of them is that they're both right in their perspectives. And I think that's mm -hmm. what makes it so fascinating, is they come from two different worlds, and both of their ways of thinking are effective in the worlds in which they live. And the great thing about this show is it's merging together all of these worlds. And so it's fun as a viewer to watch it play out because... It's not like someone's right, someone's wrong. It's fun to see who's gonna bend here or where is the conversation going to go because the other great thing about Richard and Susan is they are two incredibly strong human beings, strong-willed human beings, neither of whom are going to bend to the other, but there is a clear, I don't know if respect is the word at this juncture in the game, but like, I think that they both recognize that the other one is a formidable player in the game and that's established in this conversation. But I also just love all of the cutaways as the tribe is trying to plan what to do. The cutaways of Richard's face, I think, are just such great storytelling. They're not like he's making like, they're not like memeable faces that he's making in response. But it's just so clear that like, Richard's gonna be tough to work with in this game. But again, if this were any other season, Rich people would be gunning for Richard early on. But... And I don't know if this is maybe footage that we don't see, but it's like, I think that like Richard has a way of endearing himself with people in this tribe. He's not just this deeply abrasive person who sits in the tree and does nothing. You get the sense that like 30 minutes after he sat in that tree, he got up and helped to do whatever that they, you know, whatever they landed on for how to do the shelter, you get the impression Richard was willing to do it. He just wanted to do the Richard thing, which is be difficult for a little while and say how he would do it. And yeah, the other totally. thing too is it wasn't as though you would think it might be like Richard's an alpha and he's contending with other alphas, but it, it that again, that wasn't really how it played out. It was more Richard being like, there's a more effective way that this can be done, but I'll do it your way. Just so long yeah. as you understand, I know the better way. Um, but I'll still do it. I'll do it your way. I'm demurring yeah. to you. It's just so interesting how everyone so effortlessly falls into their roles and effortlessly as in I, I they're doing it without thinking about it. Um, but you have like, like just how they found this woman, Sue Hawk, in their casting process. I, I'll never understand because just, for, you know, from the get-go, her standing, talking to Richard, who is physically above her, in the tree and her saying look i'm a redneck this i don't fuck with corporate bullshit 
and and you are not in the corporate world we're in the bush and so like it is not your way out here it's just such a great just like such a great way to start the episode and start the season where this is really going to be and that this dynamic this rich and sue dynamic is what is going to drive the entire narrative of this season it's so thrilling to just watch it start here it's like watching history unfold yeah and she's not stupid. It goes back to the whole thing of like, mm-hmm. they're both right in their ways. I think that's the other thing that makes this ultimately a rewarding journey to go on with the two of them is that, yes, I do I think Richard is smarter than Susan? Yes. Um, but I don't think the dynamic is smart versus dumb. I think it's two versions of smart uh, and two versions of effective that are clashing up against one another. And and yeah, to your point about the, the luck in finding a Susan is it's like, her unwillingness to bend is so compelling throughout this season. Yeah. And just to touch on the music here for a second, but as we see the Toggy camp getting set up and they're, and they're building, they actually get down to work and we see them, you know, cutting bamboo shoots and hammering posts into the ground and it's set to the music. So you're getting the percussion is provided by them working, but Wait. it's set to the song. Wait. So incredible. We need to like talk about that moment a little bit more. That is, I think, probably my favorite moment in the episode. It is, it feels like the opening to a musical. It's like, it almost <laughs> feels like they're about to burst into song. Yeah. Um, if anyone is familiar with the musical Crazy For You, the song I've Got Rhythm sort of has a similar beginning where it's like, th- or, oh, 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 even more popular reference, um, The Little Mermaid, um, um, Percussion. Uh, what song am I thinking of? The one that the crab <laughs> sings. Do you know what I'm talking Under about? Under the sea? Yeah. But do you know do you know what I'm talking about? Like the reference? Yeah. Um, hold on. Let's The Crab. Sebastian. Yeah, but like, um, anyway. Yes, it reminds me of that, but I think it's just that's such a great Okay, so it's funny, right? We just read this article in Entertainment Weekly, this bullshit article talking about the flourishes that are bringing in for that they're bringing in for Survivor 43. And the flourishes are like, we're changing the Chiron here and it's going to say he does one thing, but then we're going to change it up to another. This is an example of an actual flourish mm-hmm. that is just so cool because there is something that it's like, okay, everyone has their job, let's get to work, right? And we never really get to see the whole like how the shelter is made montage. And I think this was just such a great attempt at like, it showed us the passage of time and it showed us that like everyone ultimately has a role to be played on this island that's not just related to challenges and it's not just related to um, social game. There are moments when like eight people are given tasks for the day and they all just go about and do them. And I just, I loved that. And it was the 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 complexity of the musical cue here was so fun that by the end of it, you too were like wiping the the sweat off your brow and we're like, okay, we did it. It's done. We all collectively came together and got the shelter made. I just, I could watch cues like this always. I thought this was brilliant. Yeah. What this moment reminds me of is actually a much more niche musical. It's the movie musical Dancer in the Dark starring Bjork by Lars von Trier, where, you know, she works in a factory and she is going blind and it's like sort of almost enhancing her uh, hearing and she really lives in her own world sometimes. And there's like this great song where they're in the factory and she's hearing the slams and crashes of all of the machinery and then sort of bursts into song in her own mind. It's very that. It's, this, this moment is very Bjork. 
<laughs> it's very Fiona Apple, fetch the bolt cutters. Uh, okay. <laughs> Let's go check in on the Pagong tribe a little bit because uh, if we thought that the Tuggy tribe had a little bit of a hard time getting on their feet, woof, it's nothing compared to the Pagongs, who I had such a soft spot for in my heart when I watched at the time. But as I've grown older, I've sort of changed my perspective on the Pagongs, where I still love some of them individually, but as a tribe, they are an absolute disaster. And it's like, from the from the get-go, it's like they the shots of their beach are a disaster, it is a mess. There are clothes and shit everywhere all over the beach. It's not as nice of a beach. I used to think it was a nicer beach because it's so sandy and so broad. But like the Takis really had it good because they have sort of like they, they still get their beach, but they have their shelter sort of like the, the, the forest starts much closer to the beach where Pagong is just a little bit of a wasteland of, of sandy beach. And their shit is strewn all over the beach. Uh, Ramona's sick, which is going to be a big story in these first few episodes. That first, she's just seasick, right? Right, um, and, and, and with the music sick. cues, with the music cues, it like if this were you know any other season, I'd be like, oh, she's going home because there's yeah. just something ominous about the music where it's like, I don't know, it's like you think she's like it doesn't look good for her. Um, fortunately, she's she's fine in the end. But yeah, that got very touch and go uh, from the get go. Um, but they very clearly spend a lot less time on on Pagong here, and maybe that's because Toggy is going to be going to tribal uh, in this episode. But of of note, I think we have a, a little bit of the dynamics here of BB with the rest of the tribe, but also we get some more Ramona content here where we get BB and Ramona going out to find the water well. And I thought that this was really great because, once again, with sort of the sense of adventure... They pitch it as the water well is hard to find and we need a map and we're getting lost as we're going to find it and that it's a really far walk, which which it may actually be because I think this comes up later in the season that um, I remember when BB's like, I guess this would be episode two, BB's like washing his clothes in the fresh water and Gretchen is like, we don't have time before the sun goes down to go back to the water well and get back with fresh water. Um, so it must actually be kind of far, but it's just great to see like these two people, Ramona and BB, already sort of like struggling with one another and bb has this <laughs> bb has this accent uh where he's just says certain weirds and words in a really weird way where uh he's he's looking at the map and he says the trail washes out it oh, yeah. washes out and there's this moment where ramona it's like a very micro moment but ramona goes what wash or and she oh, washes out okay um and <laughs> it's just so funny to see but here you get the very first uh, and, and although it was said tongue in cheek, the very first sort of like strategic conversation in Survivor where uh, Bibi and Ramona suggest to one another that if they don't tell anybody else where the water well is, they will be forced to be kept uh, by their tribe if they, if they are sort of the gatekeepers of the water. And although this like clearly doesn't pan out to anything it's interesting to see because this is something that richard hatch is going to use on the toggy tribe as like i am the provider i am the only person who can get fish and although there's a map to the water well you could you you could ditch that map and you could be the sole source of the water so that's a little bit of interesting survivor history there that that is sort of like the first strategic suggestion made on the show uh, anything else to say about the pagongs early on here I mean, they, they, it's interesting. They don't even bother making a shelter, right? We have this well, whole I was going to say, the scene, of on the Toggy Beach. 
the scene with Gretchen and Bibi, what's odd about it is like, yes, Bibi's being a psychopath, but at the same time, it's like, where is everyone else in that moment? Like when Bibi is working on the shelter, like granted, yes, he's he's not taking a break and maybe going a little too hard, but at the same time, like they do need a shelter and he is working on the shelter. Where is everyone else? Part of me thinks that maybe everyone was helping out and everyone was like, let's take 30 minutes and like, you know, we'll reconvene, but like, let's go for a swim, blah, blah, blah. And BB was like, no, I don't want to take a break. Let's get it done. And maybe that's what happened. But the way they present the scene is as, as though there's a bunch of rowdy kids who are seeing this as an opportunity just to, you know, have a little uh, vacation. Yeah. yeah. And BB's here doing all the work. Um, but that scene, it, it, again, going back to the thing about it got a little scary with Ramona being sick. This got a little scary to me too, because I kept thinking if I were on production, there's no blueprint for this show ever being done. We're on this island playing this game of Survivor. There is a world in which it's like a person of BB's age in particular is overexerting themselves to the point where they might have a heart attack, you know, worst case scenario, or like something really serious could happen. Um, and I, I, I was wondering like where that line is as far as, you know, is there a point at which production intervenes and they're like, no, BB, you need to drink some water or like you need to take a rest, which I think is what Gretchen was getting at. Um, but that was like another sort of fear I had in watching that scene play out was just, is, is he going to be okay? Yeah, this scene between BB and Gretchen is so interesting because it's like where on the Toggy tribe, we have all these s- sort of leaders in their own way. I think like uh, if you were going to say that people are alphas or whatever, it would be like uh, Richard, Sue and Rudy. Where here on the Pagong tribe, you really just have like two potential leaders, one being BB because of his age and he's sort of bossy. And then another being Gretchen, who's obviously going to become the leader of the Pagong tribe. And they're such distinctly different styles, and they really come across in this very brief interaction between Gretchen and Baby, where Baby's just like complaining that his like authoritarian approach to the tribe isn't working, and like Colleen was supposed to untangle this net. Where even is she? Um, where Gretchen is trying to get across this like much more gentle leadership style, where it's like you need to kind of like work with these people and like give them a reason to want to follow you and it's really interesting to see here that Gretchen is trying to trying to help BB in a way to be the leader of the tribe but ultimately she is going to be the leader of the tribe for all the reasons that are are being expressed to BB here Um, so it's really interesting dynamic but over uh, back on Toggy, I think this is where we get these these incredible and iconic shots uh, in the morning, like where we get a silhouette of Kelly stretching on the beach uh, with this sort of purple-hued morning light coming down, where you get Rudy's iconic confessional you talked about, where he is sort of uh, submerged in the water and, and where he, he gives one of his uh, early famous lines where he says, I don't even know what MTV means and talking about how he's going to have to adapt to the young people here. Uh, there's just so many other shots here that I want to point out, uh, and I don't have much to say about them, but it's just like catching Sue combing her hair with a knife. With like a knife. A hunting knife. Just saying, like, I woke up with... This is day two, by the way. And day she's two, doing it one casually, <laughs> casually in conversation with others while she's yeah. doing it. It's, so that it's like not only the act itself being absurd, but the casual nature with which she's doing it is also just dumbfounding. Day it's two. Completely wild. It's completely wild. And 
Sonia has a cut on her leg for some reason. Interesting here that that the medical team is not brought in, but Sean is brought in because he's a doctor. And I really like this idea of like having to fend for themselves where it's like, we happen to have a doctor, so he's going to take care of me. But I will say, they clearly have a first aid kit. Okay, fair enough. But let's talk about what else they have. They are given a ton of shit in this season. It is truly wild. I mean, we saw them, I think, uh, after the morning, opening up the supplies that they took from the boat. They had kerosene, they had lamps, they have like mosquito netting. There's just so much stuff. Fish traps, rat traps, all this stuff that would... It's amazing that there's rat traps. Um, But there's all this stuff that otherwise in a later season they would have to win in a reward it's just amazing the amount of shit that they were given Hmm. is now where we talk about sonia's song please let's talk about sonia's song what an incredible incredible moment (laughs) like first of all most iconic first boot of all time question mark i'd really have to give that some thought probably one of the most memorable She's not the most memorable. But just such a joyous human moment. I love the way Richard is listening. He's so actively listening to her. She's just so genuine and so sweet and so not cut out for this game. But it's wonderful and the show's better for having her there. And we just talked about it in our recap of 43. We've talked about this forever, how much we want older people on this game, not for nothing. It's like in this episode, three of the highlight, I mean, I mean, obviously BB and Rudy are the two, two of the biggest characters in this episode, but Sonia herself has this, you know, star is born making moment here with this song. I don't think it's like a top 40. Um, but I definitely think this is a song that like, it has a shelf life. I loved hearing it. And I don't know, just Sonia's so sweet. But in addition, this is just such a great scene between two LGBT players. Um, And uh, so Sonia is not identified as gay in the show. My understanding, and we we did talk to Rich about this. I can't remember specifically what he said, but uh, my understanding of the survivor history on this is that Sonia was open with her tribe mates, but after being voted out, asked the production not to make it a part of the episode which they obliged and so she is not identified as gay on the show but because the show was such a phenomenon obviously it did come out in like tabloid papers and things but so knowing that it's just such a nice scene between a gay man an older lesbian they're sharing this like beautiful moment and richard is truly actively listening to her and like you can see the joy in him experiencing this moment and it's it's incredible. And it's like, what it, a piece of like gay history on TV. Yeah. It's just so pure. And it's also like, again, Richard was such an unexpected depiction of a gay man. Sonia's an unexpected depiction of a gay woman, again, for that time. And then, yeah, to have this moment where they're both interacting. And then also the fact that like, the connection being made is not predicated on their queerness. Not to say it wasn't discussed mm-hmm. by them and we just didn't see it, whatever. But again, to contrast this to 43, where we recently had a scene between two queer players where the conversation was all about their queerness and how life, you know, their lived experiences as queer people and how that bonds the two of them together. Or I'm thinking about the movie Bros, which is so much like explicitly about queerness which is one avenue with which to go down. I'm not invalidating the conversation that happened between the two of them in 43, and I have no doubt it like did in fact bond them. I just think it's nice to see this other version where it's like, 
two queer people bonding over something outside of their identity. I think that that's that's really powerful. And uh, more of that, please. And that that's more nuanced 22 years ago than what we're getting now. I mean, I think notable. the majority of this show, and I think one theme that will quickly emerge in this recap, and because, you know, so much of what we're going to be doing by talking about season one while season 43 is airing is you know, having this this dual perspective, right? And I think so much of the nuance of the show has been lost, which is so ironic in so many ways, but I think that gets back to something about us that you and I share collectively, which is that I think a lot of the things that we love about Survivor are things that the people making Survivor are not conscious of. Yeah. Well, it gets back to this thing. So I was watching this incredible YouTube video, which I would be happy to share a link to uh, in the show notes for this that is about the history of Survivor Borneo. And this person making the video had such an incredible quote about the difference between modern Survivor and old school Survivor and why he tends to prefer old school Survivor that perfectly summarized up how I felt. And what he said was that new school Survivor is a show about a game that people are playing, whereas Old School Survivor was a show about people playing a game. And it just so perfectly sums up the the evolution of what the show has focused on and, in my opinion, sort of what has gone wrong with the show. Sort of. It's funny, uh, ever since you told me that quote, I've been repeating it to several of my friends that watch Survivor, and everyone always has like the same reaction to hearing that quote, because it's such like an aha moment of a quote, because it's so succinct and perfect, but that is exactly what it is. Which is that, like, as I just said, Sonia is not cut out for the game of Survivor. She is not a good player at Survivor. There's no way in which Sonia would do well on this show, and yet I would cast a thousand more Sonias on this show because there is a place for Sonia on this show. I don't need everyone to be, like, a competition beast or this great strategic mind. That's that. Those are great when they come, but there's a lot of other um, areas in which people can bring something to the table on this show, and Sonia is just, like, a great example. It's like, give me a banjo-playing 60-plus lesbian on the show. Like that is, that's representation. <laughs> with the ukulele. Oh, <laughs> and give us back luxury items. Look at this moment that came from a luxury item, right? And you'll see this with Jervis and his cards. Why There's would they so take that moments. away? I know. I don't know. There's this no is, reason. Okay. And we that we know, and that we know from our interviews that yeah. they still ask them for luxury items. Right. In the event that they may want to give them to them. It's like, there are so many looming questions I have and it's like, why did the theme song go away? And this is another one. It's like, why take away the luxury item? It's like, you have these instances in later seasons in which they're able to excel at competitions because someone has a luxury item that is going to help. And that's really fun. Like, that's a fun example of like, something that's kind of a little bit unfair, but like fun because it's unfair through like an unusual circumstance. But it's like, it's so, it, it tells you a lot about the person, which luxury item that they chose. It's fun when someone who might be the lowest ranked in the tribe is able to come through with a luxury item that helps them win something. Like there's, there's so much there. And I think that's another example of something that's gone away that it's like, 
who came in at one point and said like, oh, that's the thing that we got to take out of the game. That's the yeah. problem. <laughs> it's like, it just doesn't make sense to me. Okay, one other thing too, while we're just talking about it, bring back the challenge, which I'm sure we'll have later this season, season and season one, where they have to get the attention of the plane overhead. I love that challenge. I miss I it so much. Well, so many of the challenges are related to survival in these early seasons. And it's like, Great. I get that. That makes sense in the conceit of the show that these people are stranded on a desert island and now they have to do this thing to like unstrand themselves in order to win something, right? And that what that just makes sense. It doesn't make sense that 18 people stranded in Fiji need to run an obstacle course and then do... Uh, a, get a ball through a maze at the end that doesn't make sense i get it but like and i don't mind it i don't mind it every now and then but like bring back some of these survival things they're fun we have fun okay uh we do get here jeff breaking the fourth wall one of these moments that we won't see again until survivor 41 where he's explaining tree mail to us and he is dropping a piece of tree mail into uh, the talky uh, mailbox whatever it is and it's interesting here because they they pull this out and it tells them okay you're going to go to this challenge and they basically determine that uh, this challenge is is for both fire and immunity and what's really interesting in this moment is that you hear stacy say on the talky tribe i guess they're combining the reward and immunity challenges this time and there's like there's certain markers that they know about the show, obviously, because, you know, they signed their contract and they probably had some um, briefings ahead of time. But some of these things slip into the actual product that uh, that maybe take you out for a second that like, oh, they know what's coming up. Another one, I think Richard says earlier in the episode where he's like, for these first 21 days, we have to work as a team. And that hints at obviously the merge, which is which is really interesting to go back and watch because at the time, I mean, maybe some people knew this, but I certainly didn't. It was like there was never this concept that the two tribes were going to become right. one. But I really like that. I think it was nice that there's very little, whereas Modern Survivor, you just get, you know, Jeff explaining these twists and you're just like, what the fuck is happening? Whereas this, I think that the simple route was actually really effective because we don't always need to know where things are going, we'll know once it's time. Also, the fact that the merge happens on day 21, which would now be five days to the end, it's just, again, just shows you, it's like, wow, this show has changed so much. Like 21 <laughs> days where you're just with the same eight people, no swap, no merge. That's going to build bonds that are going to make it harder to jump ship Oh, you know, it's just like there's something about spending three solid weeks with the same people, especially when, hey, they go back to camp after this one. It's seven people. It's like you're going to form a different kind of bond. The stakes are going to be higher when it comes to your decision around who you want to cut. Yeah. It's like these people on Modern Survivor, these three tribes with, it's just like they're, I don't even know. They're never even meeting the people until how many days in. And then at that juncture, it's like, you know, there's a few hours left in the game when the merge finally happens. Anyway. <laughs> a few hours. <laughs> okay. Let's talk about the challenge. It is a, a, an absolute classic. It's Quest for Fire. This is a challenge that they will play uh, in all, I think all but one pre-All-Stars season. Um I, I love Quest for Fire. I just love the concept. I love the consistency that it appears throughout Survivor. 
and just so fun to have a challenge taking place sort of at this time of night or day. It's sort of like, you know, sunset. Again, you think about Modern Survivor, what it looks like, and it looks the same. Every season looks the same when they arrive on the mats for the challenge. And this one has just such a distinct effect because of the light during this time of day and at this location. It's just so fun to watch. I wish that, you know, the show loves to make changes, it seems, but then there are, it's like, not the change. It's like, we don't take, it's like, don't take the theme out, but like, take the time of day when which you film the challenge, change that. It's fun. Like we, you know, we saw on the challenge uh, USA as we were watching it, they did these night challenges and it was just a fun change of pace. And it's mm-hmm. interesting that it's like they introduced the show with this challenge at night. Yeah. And it's like, I think about, you know, one of the more recent uh, uh, memorable moments is in Survivor 39, when somebody has to sneak into the other camp at night and steal fire from their fire pit. Like that's, that's memorable because we don't see something like that often right. with, with that lighting and action taking place at night. That's not just like chitter chat or like, uh, or idle hunting or something like th- those things are memorable and they do stand out. So I would love, love to see night challenges come back. And it's not even a night challenge. It's an evening challenge. But it's interesting, like by the end of the challenge, when um, the Pagongs win this challenge, that they uh, sort of set the uh, effigy, the idol effigy, whatever it is, uh, on fire. By that point, it is nighttime. And, and that's a, it's a striking image. Um, so quest for fire. Oh, before it begins, though, Jeff sort of spills the beans a little bit here because he announces to the tribe. So he's like, hey, Pagong, I heard you got fire because uh, Gretchen started a fire, I think, with BB's glasses. And he says, I heard you got fire. And Toggy, you don't have fire. Where I think Jeff is figuring out, he'll figure it out quite quickly that like, oh, uh, we shouldn't be sharing information across tribes. Like, yeah, he'll figure out in time that I should let them present what they want to present. Right. Um, so imagine if he did that today, like how, how much drama (laughs) that could stir up though. That could be an effective tool in the game though, if it were like deployed fairly to keep people on their feet. Yeah. So the challenge itself is very simple. The tribes have to go out into the water and get this like raft that has sort of like a bowl of fire on it and then light a series of torches coming back from the water and onto the shore. And the first tribe back uh, uh, will win, but they all have to keep their hands on the raft the entire time. There's this interesting moment where Jeff says like, make sure you light every torch because I don't want to be in the position of making a judgment call. Don't put me in that position, you guys. Like, this is hard enough. (laughs) It's really funny because Jeff will very, very quickly uh, become thrilled to make a judgment call. Yeah, exactly. Challenges. Yeah, it's it's giving a don't make me sing energy where it's like, yeah, no, (laughs) he wants to sing. Um, Also notable about this is the footage that they have of Sonya's fall just because it's not that dramatic. Like she, at least, or from what we see, but she appears to stumble and then we have no reason to believe she didn't quickly get up and continue on. Also, not for nothing, Rudy is behind her and makes no great effort to help his fellow tribe mate out because <laughs> um, we do see a slow-mo uh, playback of the of the scene. But it's just interesting that something as minute as her falling over could be the decision in her going home. At the same time, we have to recognize that it's like there were some inevitabilities about who was going to go home first, no matter how the challenge had gone. Um, but I mean, like, I think Sonia, like, she she put on a good show. 
Yeah. And I'm referring to the ukulele. (laughs) I think that uh, the Pagongs one was such a lead that, and it was kind of hard to tell because we didn't have Jeff telling us, but the Pagongs one was such a lead that I don't think that Sonia's fall was the deal breaker in, in their losing the challenge. I think that they were going to lose anyway. They seemed to be behind uh, at a much greater pace than just just what was caused by Sonia's fall because they were still moving. Sonia was kind of getting dragged, but uh, Pagong does end up winning and they're very cocky with their win. I kind of missed this as well, that like people would really celebrate their win and Jervis declaring this is our island and really kind of rubbing it in the Toggy's face historic and then so because this takes place at night it's like they have a whole night to go back and then it's the next day they have all day and then they're going to do tribal council so it's interesting timing here um we start to see here richard and rudy forming their bond and rudy says like we we don't get anything about the gay stuff because uh, uh, at least according to accounts of this season it's that richard came out after the first tribal to his tribe mates and i'm sure people maybe had their suspicions but what we see is rudy talking about his perception of rich as just being like overweight and that he didn't think he was going to contribute much and this is where we get him saying like actually actually he's a good worker you know he's fat but he's good which is you know rudy's second iconic quote from this premiere episode it is such a good quote. Uh, and uh, yeah, no notes, none at all. Yeah. <laughs> so they get the tree mail telling them that they have to go to tribal, which is interesting because, uh, you know, I think typically now it's just understood. Well, of course, we're going to tribal on the third day, but here they're being told and probably given a map because they actually have to hike to the tribal council. I really love in this moment that they're reading out the, the tribal tree mail. And Sue sort of like walks over and, and is still playing with her hair, uh, you know, a day later after after cutting through it with a knife. And she's going, well, well what time we got to do this at? As though it is a huge inconvenience in her day that she has to go to tribal council, which I think is so funny. And Rich says that he's narrowed it down to four potential targets as we're getting like, I wouldn't call this strategy talk, but there's some speculation about what's going to happen at Tribal. Rich says there's four potentials and he's one of them. I assume he thinks Sonia, Rudy, Rich, and probably Stacy because there's some talk about Stacy here. Um, Sonia feels unsafe because of her performance in the challenge. But here's where we get a really important piece of Survivor history. It is the first attempt at an alliance. I think very often the Toggy Four alliance of Rich, Sue, Rudy, and Kelly is credited as the first alliance in Survivor history. And while it may be the first successful alliance in Survivor history, the very first alliance attempted to be put together was actually by Stacey Stillman approaching Kelly. Again, something that happens off camera, we are told about this in confessionals, but that they had a conversation about voting the same way and they want to vote Rudy out. And we hear that they also approached Sue. And this is where we get like a great flip here uh, where Sue tells us, the chicks think I'm voting for one person and I'm not. (laughs) And she's not talking about the Dixie chicks. No. So in this span of a day, we have the first alliance formed and the first alliance betrayed. It's it's so great and such an important little bit of history that I think is very often lost. And what what world would we live in 
if this alliance was successful and we had Stacy, Sue, and Kelly voting the same way and, and getting rid of Rudy, and then like, who knows, they could pull in another woman. We could have had an all-women's alliance here on Borneo, but it wasn't meant to be. Okay, let's go to Tribal Council, where it's so interesting. We get this shot of Tribal Council in the daytime, where Jeff is walking through the Tribal Council set and explaining to us sort of like how this works. They have a chest of cash at Tribal Council representing the million dollars. And they actually say throughout the season, they're like, the winner will leave with a million dollars in cash. And uh, I don't think that that was actually the case, but... <laughs> it's it's an interesting piece of the set that we will never see again. I was just going to say, I think it's worth noting Jeff's costuming here because I think it's a really important um, artifact in the sense of like how people remember Survivor. Mm. You know, that sort of like Propstian meets Wild Thornberry's aesthetic of Jeff. <laughs> um, yeah. And I think that that is one of those like, you know, bookmarks of Survivor Borneo. I don't, how, do we know how long he kept that up? Like that particular look? Yeah, is that just the premiere? Oh, no, I, th- I think he wears this, like, quite a bit. Okay, I really, I like this costuming for him. This is, like, what, remind me, this is, like, the khaki on khaki? Mm-hmm. I think he's wearing shorts, no? Yeah. Yeah. I think that, I think, like, he just eventually, like, evolves this, because the shirts, I mean, now he's known for his blue shirt and, right. and khaki pants, but I think he, like, sort of experiments and goes back and forth. With the look, although he he does doesn't wear shorts very often, but I think that like actually this is quite recognizably Jeff Probst. Yeah, I mean, maybe not the face, but <laughs> okay. So uh, they they take their trek into the jungle. Another another relic of the past here is the gong. Everybody hits a gong on the way into tribal council. But I really like these like ritualistic aspects mm-hmm. that that are introduced, and there's really like a sense of like um, ceremony to the tribal councils here. They all get their torches, and then they have a a really weird conversation. Jeff has not perfected the tribal council interview sort of like format at this point where he's just basically like, so how's it going? How's everybody holding up? And everybody's talking over each other. It's a little bit of a disaster. There's no discussion about who might go before they vote, and they do vote. Another important moment in Survivor history here is that Sue Hawk casts the very first vote in Survivor history, and she votes for Suna. S-O-U-N-A, which Sue will have a history of misspelling her votes, and they're all iconic, but Suna really takes the cake for me. Yeah, it's like you just want to get inside that beautiful brain of hers and like understand what the thought process because you know in survivor we get a ton of instances of people not knowing how to spell names but there's also maybe we track this as we start to do this watch like there is this lineage of like people not only misspelling the name but like giving a spelling that is so nonsensical and it's really born in this moment where it's like yeah suna i do think an interesting rule that could be brought into the game is that if you misspell the player's name that your vote is does not count just putting it out there. Yeah. <laughs> Add it to the whiteboard. Okay. Yeah, we'll think about that. Um, what else? Rudy and Sonia vote for each other. Um, we do see that. I think that Kelly and Stacy vote for Rudy. Uh, and what's really funny in Rudy's confessional that I noted was that R- Rudy votes and he gives his reasons for voting for Sonia. But I couldn't pay attention to that because in the background, you can hear Sue just like, gabbing it up at tribal 
And they're just like, they haven't figured out like, okay, this is quiet time now. We have to like capture the audio. They're just having like an open discussion back there, which is really fun. But ultimately, uh, the votes are collected. And Sonia, of course, is sadly the first boot. And uh, she will be gone, but never forgotten. Anything to say about this tribal before we get to our voice memo or anything we didn't touch on that we needed to touch on? No, I mean, just to sort of underline something that was stated in the beginning, I just, I I liked the calm of this episode. I just liked the fact that it wasn't very Jeff-driven. I liked the fact that we got to spend lots of time on camp life. I didn't think they over-explained anything. I thought there was a good level of scenes versus talking heads, which I think is something that modern Survivor in my, I think, tell me if you agree, but I think it's there's more time devoted to talking heads and people explaining things. We got two, we talked about it, the Richard and Susan scene, and then the BB and Gretchen scene were like long scenes that like we were allowed to watch that maybe weren't necessarily like consequential scenes strategically, but gave us a lot of information about these people and also the game itself, right? And like the different ways in which people can play the game and strategize and think about it. And I appreciated the lack of talk about strategy, um, even though, as as we sort of hinted at, it's like there are moments where strategy is being spoken about, but it's a little bit less explicit in the way that today it's like day one and they're already everyone's working to form an alliance from the moment they get on the beach. And this is just so much getting to know people figuring out how to build a shelter. Not even today, it's like they get there and it's like, okay, we'll get people weaving the palm fronds. This is like, what do we even do to build a shelter? Mm-hmm. Like what is, how, what is that even entail? So I just like all of the ways in which people had to figure things out. And I liked watching that play out. And I think the show did a great job of giving that the space space. And then also it just didn't feel like the producers were trying to tell a story of something. It seemed like a story was happening. This goes back to that quote that you read, but it's like, it seemed like something was happening and the producers were able to capture it. Um, yeah. And I, I like, I think that is just part of the lightning in a bottle that is Survivor Borneo. I think it's really interesting that this episode focuses so heavily on our older players when Survivor was very actively targeting a young demographic. They were targeting the 18 to 34 demographic. And, uh, you know, I uh, in this in this history of Borneo that I watched, uh, they explained that CBS had done targeted ads on various uh, various channels like VH1, MTV, specifically to target that young demographic and they got these people they actually this episode was watched by something like 15 million people which is an absolutely gigantic number for a brand new show for any show but for a brand new show and one with a concept that hadn't really been tested and uh and that they won that demographic and and yet they presented uh, an episode that's so heavily focused on an older generation than the demographic they were targeting, I think was like a bold choice and really interesting because we did not really meet Colleen in this episode, right. who's going to become an incredibly big character. We didn't really meet Jenna. We didn't really meet Jervis. There's a lot of people. Kelly barely got uh, much development here. So it's really interesting that uh, there are really deciding to pace themselves here and show us the story uh, of that episode. But what I really like about the early seasons and especially Borneo is that they are not going to be afraid to um, 
take their time with the storytelling and that like they're going to plant a seed and then it'll show up later and show up later where you know in later survivor seasons we're going to see like everything has to get crammed into this one episode and mm-hmm. that's going to be inconsequential in the next episode right um, and we don't but, need idols we don't need twists the game can just be simply you know we don't need even something like the two tribes as we mentioned or 16 players versus 18 yeah i think that there's I don't, it's not even slow. I think some people might watch these early seasons of Survivor and consider it slow because it is distinctly slower than the show as it exists today. But again, the nuance there is it's like, yes, agreed, slower, but it is not slow. I think it's just slower But it doesn't make it pace. less interesting. Exactly. It actually, I think, makes it more interesting. Exactly. It makes it so much more interesting. So again, it's like, I feel like that quote you read unlocked so much for me and, and maybe for others listening, but it's like just the importance of character and people um, is great. And also, like, it's not people's stories, right? It's like, Susan, imagine imagine these 16 players coming in to the, the way in which the show is built presently. Like, if Susan had to come in and explain why she's playing the game, it's like none of these people have, outside of perhaps Sonia with her journey with cancer, but, like, these people do not have interesting stories to tell as to why they are here. Um, and it doesn't matter. That's not the yeah. point. And, the uh, you know, as as we understand, the point has changed. Um, but yeah, so... It's very much that the point is the focus on the, the, the new society that they are building. Yeah. What I would love to know from people listening is it's like, I would love to hear from people explaining to me, like, people that are bigger fans of Modern Survivor than this. It's like, what, what did you not like about this episode? Like, I would love to hear ways in which people think that the show has improved upon this because it's like you know we clearly are aligned we love this season and we love old school survivor but like i would love to just gain the other perspective here in terms of like why was this episode a disaster do people if people have that mindset like i would love to hear that argument yeah okay let's get to our voice memo this is i think the longest recap of an hour-long show that we've ever done um (laughs) and it's funny because it's like i'm going through my notes and like skipping stuff so anyway oh my god i didn't even talk about the rat soup uh, you know, because as Sue said, rats are just squirrels without the fuzzy tail. So why not eat them? Which implies that Sue eats squirrel. Okay, but we'll leave that. Now Now I have mentioned it, so I didn't skip it anymore. But let's get to our voice memo uh, because we do need to talk about the music of Survivor. Hello, Sean and Evan. This is Mary of Tub fame. So thrilled that you guys are doing this. So thrilled that it's giving me the opportunity to rewatch Borneo. Thank you. What a beautiful series premiere. My God. Unforgettable, iconic moments. You've got Sean's nipple ring. You've got BB <laughs> talking about his age gap love. You've got Kelly Wigglesworth and her warrior too. All so good. But what really struck me about this episode is just how beautifully it's put together, the visuals and really the audio experience, the sonic journey that Russ Landau and David Vanacore take us on. Um, love the prevalence of the and just all of the themes coming in for the first time, just pure magic. They are artists. It has led me to want to know from you two what your favorite Survivor music moment is, your favorite orchestration, your favorite Vanacore Landau 
masterpiece. Personally, mine is the reunion theme that is like, wow, 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 you know it, you love it. Let us know, sing us a few measures, and thank you. Wow. Wow. Mary is the unofficial third co-host. Oh, excuse me, fourth, <laughs> after Ricard, the unofficial fourth co-host of this podcast. It's funny, it's like, I feel like Mary is like so much better equipped to be hosting this podcast than I am. So maybe if I'm ever calling in, in sick, we can have Mary uh, sub in. Um, I love that thought. I, I don't have one. I don't have one that comes to mind. Um. I would say it's going to be something I'm conscious of as we move through the series in this rewatch. Because one thing um, for people to to know is like, because I mainline the show in COVID, it's often hard for me to discern different seasons and something as specific as musical cues um, mm. that it all sort of bleeds together. But I am ready to be very hyper aware of the music. And, and something that you said that Mary, that made me think was, I bet you, you could listen to this episode of Survivor as a podcast, not not this Drop Your Buffs episode, the season premiere, audio only, and get just as much as you need from it. Like, I think that there's so much, the even thinking about, like, the the voices, right? Like, how how <laughs> just everyone's unique voices, and then on top of that, the music, and, the, and, and, and I just think this could be an audio experience. Um, but yeah, in terms of audio flourishes, I will, something I will be on the lookout for. Sean, do you have one? Yeah, well, I have or a wait, lot of I will be on with... the ear out for, excuse me. Yes. I have a lot of experience with the Survivor music because, of course, after, <laughs> after Borneo aired, I did buy the soundtrack on CD and I actually would put it in my disc man and listen to it like on the bus on the way to school, which is so embarrassing. And I was always afraid that somebody would ask me what I was listening to. And it's so cringe to think about that now, but it like I actually did do that. And so I do have favorite songs. And I have one specific favorite song that comes to mind. And it's used uh, often. It's like it's like a, an emotional theme. But it's most frequently used during the rites of passage, uh, the fallen comrades sort of thing, where they collect torches of the previous players at the final three or final two. And it's that song that goes, You know that one? Yeah, it was gorgeous. It's called I Can See It. I mean, it's like you could use that. You could use that sound cue in any movie released today. It's like that. There's yeah. I mean, that's a coming home music if I've ever heard it. Um, but it's amazing because the Survivor soundtrack mm, oh has gosh. some songs that are used for many, many, many seasons uh, to come. But there are some songs that are like never used again and they're very of their time and there's this one that i recalled when i was doing my research for this it's called buzzed and you'll totally recognize it from season one and it's so the year 2000 it is wild and i really love it but 
it just, uh, it's a little dated. It sounds like this. It's got this like almost Moby esque. I was gonna say. To I was it. gonna say. It reminded me of Moby. Yeah, I really like that. It's, it almost sounds like um, uh, the soundtrack to the beach, which is mm. I think very a very surprising. Now I do want to mention Sean has the opportunity to hear these questions in advance and prepare his answers. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm I sorry. Just wanted Next to time, just I'll... wanted to mention that. <laughs> I thought... off guard here. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I thought I really thought you would have a song. To be honest, no, I I, I feel you're gonna hear a song and be like, oh, that's the song. Yeah, exactly. Although when you play that rites of passage song, it's like I am completely transported back. So, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Well, this is something we can keep an eye. But on I do want to say I am very glad that we are doing this the way that we're doing it because. Sean and I had discussed the format with which to do the rewatch, which I don't even know if we've like fully landed on how we're doing it just yet. We just knew we wanted episode one to be a standalone, but it's like the fact that we're going this long for episode it's one, like two hours. <laughs> but it's because we just watched it and it's really fun to recap something from the past, but with fresh perspective. Whereas like doing the rankings, it's just like, we're never going to be able to have 42 seasons of survivor top of mind. So like, it's just, there's, going to be a level in which it's just going to have to be diluted by the fact that like certain seasons are going to be top of mind more than others. And it's fun in this moment to have something that it's like, we both just watched the premiere. So we're talking about it with the exact level of specificity. We would a 43 recap. And that's a fun thing to do. If not more. Well, there's more to say, but I just will say, I mean, obviously I have a shit attitude about, modern survivor and i'm trying very hard to you know to love it in for the sake of this podcast but like watching this episode was a reminder that like i think this is one of the greatest television shows in history um that i don't think needs to still exist today but i'm glad that it does um but i fucking love survivor and this was like a reminder of like why yeah absolutely and it, it just really transports me back in time to, to watching this. And, and I've watched it. I mean, I've watched this season, probably this episode more than any other in the history of the show. And I always find something new. It's, so, it's such a rich season of Survivor, and I can't wait to watch the rest of it. So we are going to be back to recap the next episodes. However we do that, our goal is kind of like to group some episodes together. I think we got a lot of our upfront talk out of the way here in this one, and we might be able to actually breeze through some of them. So we might combine like two, three, four in the next recap. We'll see how it works. We'll see how it works. It's going to, it's, it's organic. We're figuring it out. Like Jeff was figuring out how to host the show in season one and you're along for the journey. And I hope you feel like you are because we want to hear from you more. I hope you're rewatching just like Mary is. I've heard from a couple of people who have watched the premiere in anticipation of this episode so very Mm. very excited to go on this journey with you all and we will update you on sort of like how we're tackling the next episode so you can get all caught up just a a thought i mean this might maybe won't work but we could do the finale watch as a live patreon something like Um, we could like twitch stream it or something or something but like we could do something around the like to really build out the finale yeah okay we'll think about that and So if you want to hear the rest of this, if you are listening and you are not on Patreon yet, go check out our Patreon. 
because how could you not want to find out how this journey ends? Who's the winner of Survivor Borneo? Well, there's only one way you can find out, and that's by subscribing to our Patreon. Yeah. So I'll give you one hint. It's not Sonia. Oh. Imagine if it was. Well. You know, sometimes I rewatch an old season of Survivor, and I'm like, imagine if this thing I knew was happening didn't happen. I have that moment all the time when I'm rewatching something. Every time I rewatch the Terra death on Buffy, I'm like, oh my God, but what if? And then. Just imagine if you were watching and you were like, oh my God, Rudy went home first. It would be so exciting. Anyways, I'm living in an imaginary world now. I'm getting delusional. Okay, so. The rest of our recaps will be on Patreon. Of course, if you're already listening to this on Patreon, you know that. So look forward to our next one. Make sure that if you want to get involved in this conversation, reach out, send us a voice memo. I would love to talk about something that happened 22 years ago, as you can tell. So uh, I would love to hear your thoughts on it as well. This has been so fun. We are going to have uh, more content on the main feed, more content on Patreon. So keep an eye out, join the conversation, do whatever you got to do. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Bye.